Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad that you decided to join us today. We're in the middle of a series in the book of Song of Solomon, which is one of the most interesting books of the Bible, and we think that you will find it interesting too. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. If you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Song of Songs, uh, chapters 1 and 2, up to two, verse, chapter, chapter 2, verse 13, uh, that's where we're going to be. And um, today we're actually starting over again by looking at chapters 1 and 2. And you say, well, why are we doing that? Well, because as we've learned, this actually is a song, and songs are difficult to interpret. You know, you can hear a song and think it means one thing, and I can hear the same song and think that it means something else. And as a result of that, this is a song that's, what, about 3,000 years old, something like that. So it's pretty old, written in another language, another culture, another time. So that makes understanding this even more challenging. And we've, just, we've learned that there are about three main ways that scholars uh, come at this song. And so we decided to do it justice. We're going to do all three ways this summer, just to try to get the most meat out of it that we can. And so we started looking at it as the culmination of Solomon's wisdom writings, that Solomon took everything he knew about life, love, and God, and he put it to a song, put it to music, and we call it the Song of Songs. And then we spent the last five weeks or so looking at it as ancient Hebrew love poetry. And we learned some great lessons about relationships and marriage and friendships and so forth, and that was really good. And now this morning, we're going to shift gears. So don't get whiplash. We're going to shift gears all together, and it's very different, but we're going to look at it allegorically as representing the special relationship between Jesus and the church. Now, when you look at it allegorically, the rules change. Um, So as we've noted, there are three main characters in this song. You have the male figure named Solomon, and then we have the female figure. She's called the Shulamite. And then you have these friends, or the daughters of Jerusalem, they're also called. And we noted that if you think of it as a song, you think of this as like a duet, and you have the, the man singing his part, and you have the woman singing her part, and then you have the friends, they're the backup singers, uh, they're the shoe-wop, diddy-wop, you know, part of the song, and that's, how, that's really how this would go. And so under, as we, when we looked at it as Hebrew love poetry, those were the characters, Solomon, Shulamite, the friends. Now the characters change when we look at it as an allegory. The Solomon figure, the male figure, that person represents Jesus. Shulamite, the woman in the song, who do you suppose that is? That's us. That's the church. That's followers of Christ. And then the friends, well, they're the friends. We'll just call them the community. They pretty much stay about the same, and they they support the plot of the song. So We have to keep that in mind as we read this. Now, this morning, we're just going to read chapter 1 and into the first half of chapter 2, and as we do, I think you'll see how this really starts to take on 
just a different look when you think of it as Jesus and us singing to one another. And here's a warning. This is going to make some of us very uncomfortable because Jesus says things to you that you never heard him say before and that that you've probably never really heard in church before. Jesus would say these things, and yes, he does. I think that what you need to, what we will get out of this is this. Jesus is romantic. And Jesus' feelings for you run deeper than you ever imagined that they could or would. And so you hear Jesus just gushing over you and speaking to you in words that you've never heard before. And I believe that what it does is it rattles us awake and it busts past our religious walls and brings us into an intimate place with Christ. So you'll see what I mean. It begins right away in chapter 1, and guess what? It's us talking. We do the talking. So we begin with verse, verse 2 there. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the, the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king take me into his chambers. And the friends sing, we rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. And we continue singing, how right they are to adore you, Jesus. Mm. Yet we look at ourselves, dark am I, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I'm dark, because I'm darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me, and they made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I had to neglect. Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? And the friends pipe in. If you do not know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. And now Jesus speaks to you. I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. We'll explain that in a minute. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. We sing to Jesus. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. I hold Jesus close to my heart. Right? My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of En And Jesus says to you, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are doves. And we say to him, how handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. And then he assures us, the beams of our house, our cedars, our rafters, our firs. Chapter 2, verse 1. I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. And Jesus says, Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. And we sing, like an apple tree 
like an apple tree. Among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall, and let his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Listen, my beloved, Look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My beloved spoke, and he said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. See, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth, the season of singing has come, the cooing of doves is heard in our land, the fig tree forms its early fruit, the blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. And that's the word of God. I, I love the fact that at the heart of our Bibles, you think about it, you know, the Song of Songs is really at the, about the center of your Bible, if you look at it physically. I love the fact that at the heart of our Bibles, we see the heartbeat of God, and we discover that it's beating for us. And he's not giving it to us in a sermon, so you have to take notes, and it's not a seminar. He gives it to us in a song, a song so that it resonates, so that it rings in your soul. It's a song that touches us like at an emotional level so that it sticks down there, so that we begin to own it, you see. And because it's a song, it's, it's difficult to see the storyline, but there actually is a plot through the Song of Songs. So let me just give it to us so that we can see it, okay? Because I know in the poetic language, it's easy to miss it. So here's the plot line of the whole song. It's the movie Princess Diaries. I know that's an older movie, so you have to go back into your memories to get it, but I hope you've seen it. If you haven't, it's, it's a cute movie. I'd recommend it. But the Princess Diaries, if you don't, here's how the plot goes. You have awkward teenage girl who one day discovers that she is part of the royal family. But she has to wrestle with that because that really would change her life. She's just awkward teenage girl in high school bumbling through, and I'm royalty. So she goes and she begins to get to know the royal family, and what do you know? She and the prince fall in love, and the prince's love is what transforms her, and she, at the end of the film, is royalty. She has finally stepped into her place, right, in royalty. That's the plot line of the Song of Songs. Shulamite, you and me, are the awkward teenage girl. And Jesus, of course, is the prince of princes, the king of kings, the lord of lords. And he comes to us and he calls royalty out of you. He says, you're royalty. And we go, what? That can't be. You're talking to the wrong person. And he says, no, you're royalty. Come walk with me. And we begin to walk with Jesus. And as we walk with Jesus, he begins to transform us, begins to do a work in us. And by the time we're all done, sure enough, look at us. 
reigning with Christ. Isn't that something? That's the plot line of the Song of Songs. Now, chapter 1 and chapter 2 that we just read is just the very beginning. So we're not covering the whole plot. Where we are this morning is simply this. You and I have discovered that something is missing in our lives. And we call out to Jesus and we say, Jesus, please kiss me. I I need a fresh start. I need you, Jesus. And we begin this relationship with him. But we have this awkwardness because we realize that we have a fault. We see our darkness. I'm dark like the tents of Kedar. I'm lovely, but I'm dark. See, But the good news is, I think I have an excuse. And so because of my excuses, Jesus is going to love me. I mean, if he can't love me for who I am, maybe he'll love me for the excuse. See, so, But then we discover, no, Jesus has loved you all along. And we begin this relationship with him. That's where we're starting today, okay? So let's just walk through it a little bit. And we begin, first of all, with verse 1, okay? That, that first request. The song begins with a request. And it's not a request for money or fame or power, although he's the king. So we could certainly ask him for any of that. No. She says, let him kiss me. Let him kiss me. If you think about it in our relationship with Jesus, all of us have asked Jesus for things over the years, haven't we? I want Jesus to do this thing for me or that thing for me. And that's certainly appropriate. He's the king. He can do that. But even that, at some point, runs dry. And I begin to realize, actually, Jesus, you are all I want. Not just the things that you can do for me, but you. Kiss me. Come close, Jesus, to me. Mouth to mouth. Breathe your life, Jesus, in me. It's a callback to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where God creates Adam from the dust of the ground, and there his body lay on the ground like clay, Until what happens? The divine kiss. God comes in and he breathes life into Adam's body. And Adam comes alive for the first time. And I think in our heart of hearts, every one of us know that we had that at one point. All of humanity, I'm talking about all of us as people, right? We, We had that intimate relationship with God. And we blew it. And every one of us wants that back. I want that intimacy with God. Every other longing that I have in my life is really ultimately an echo of my longing to have that back that Adam and Eve lost in the garden because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God. We want that back. And we we might try to chase after other things, but ultimately they don't satisfy. And we come to this place where we say, God, kiss me. Please bring me to life again. It's the cry for restoration and deliverance. And it's illustrated also in the experience of ancient Israel as they languished under the oppressive hand of their slave masters in Egypt. And they cried out to God for deliverance. And you know, God raised up Moses. And God said this to Moses. I love it. Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. 
God says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them. Like every statement in that scripture drips with good news. Do you catch that? God says, I have indeed, I've seen, I have seen your misery. And I have heard your cry. Maybe nobody else did. I, God says, I've heard your cry. And then God says, here's, here's where it gets really good, right? God says, I am concerned. Isn't that powerful? The God of the universe says, I'm concerned about you. And then he says, so what am I doing? God says, I have come down to rescue you. I am coming to rescue you. Oh, my friends, is that not the word that the people of our generation desperately need to hear right now? Like the cry for somebody to love me for who I am, to, like, to love really me, like that cry is deafening in our culture. It's deafening. We know that things are messed up, and we know that we keep putting Band-Aids on it, and that just messes it up even more. Every solution causes more problems, it seems. And, and God keeps calling to us as a culture, as a, as a people, as a nation, as a world, you know, as a, as a human race. God keeps calling to us, and we keep saying, nah, that can't be it. No, that's got to be something else. And we drive God to the fringe, and we we insist, no, it's got to be someone else or something else that kisses us. We, that's really what we need. And I think this is the reason why our church was packed on Thursday night as we prayed for Aaron. Because in moments like that, moments like this, I shouldn't even put it in past sense, we're still there. In moments like this, when a life hangs in the balance, we literally have nowhere else to turn but God, do you not feel utterly helpless as Aaron lies in his bed? You know what I mean? Like, there's nothing you and I can do for that. And do you not feel strangely awkward? Like, I don't, what do I say? I don't know. How do I, you know, do I hug? You don't know what to do. We're, we are so out of our league, are we not? And I think sometimes we come to times like this, and this is where we realize, I have nowhere else to go but God. Like all the other things that I've tried, they do not work. See? Which begs the question, why do we wait for a disaster before we turn to God? Why do we not turn to Him every day? See, in the Psalms, Psalms 42, verse 1, the psalmist cries this out. He says, "My as the deer pants... For the streams of water, so my soul thirsts for you. I love that vivid word picture. Can you not picture the deer panting? And that's, that's your soul. That's my soul. God, I need you, God. I'm thirsty for you, God. 
Is it, it's the cry of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 23. Paul says, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. I love that way the words roll off your tongue. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. We're groaning. We're waiting, right? We're, this is our heart. And this is reflected in these first words of the Song of Songs. Kiss me. Let him kiss me. Our longing for Jesus. I need you, Jesus. My soul's thirsty, Jesus. I'm dry. All of us reach this moment when we come to the end of our false selves. And we just can't keep up the charade anymore. And the loneliness of our souls reaches a fever pitch. And all of our fixes have fallen apart. And we cry out for Jesus to kiss us. I, uh, I, I read this this week. God's timing is pretty cool. Uh, Jordan Tatro just randomly loaned me this book called Scary Close by Donald Miller and picked it up and started reading it. It's actually pretty good. And he uses this little um, illustration in it, and it just fits really well with where we are this morning of these three concentric circles. Like this is what happens in our lives that leads us to this. So the first circle, if you see the slide there, the first circle is... Um, there we go, my true self, the center of the bullseye. That's who you really are. That's the person that, that God created. He made that person. But somewhere along the way, and this is how Donald Miller explains it, and I will say he, he says it a lot better than I do, so we'll put up with that. But the true self, somewhere along the way, uh, we get this message, and it's usually pretty early on, that who you truly are that, that is not lovable as is. And that creates a layer of shame around the true self. And that layer, and shame says a very powerful message to you and me. And the message of shame is that you are not lovable as is. Who you truly are is not enough. You need to be something more. Uh, Donald Miller says it this way in his book. I liked it. He says, nobody steps onto a stage and gets a standing ovation just for being human. We all have to sing or dance or do something. Like, that's the message that we get. And so we all start singing and dancing, and that's what we do. And this is called the false self. That's that last ring in the thing. And the false self is the persona that I give other people of me. And some people call it our personality even, but our personalities often are nothing more than a mask that we put on in our sad attempt to be loved because who I truly am isn't lovable enough, so I have to have this, you see, in order to be accepted. Follow that? This is what happens to us. And so we put this mask on. And maybe your mask is, you know, uh, you're the funny guy, you're the funny girl, you're, you're always the life of the party, you've always, got the, you've always got the latest joke, and oh, that's great. And that's how you're comfortable, see? Or maybe you're the tough guy or the tough girl, you're the one that's always got it under control. Maybe you're the smart person, you know? You really, you're, you're academic, and that's, that's your thing, and you hide behind that. Maybe you're the beauty queen, or the worker bee, or the person who's always got to be in charge, or person who always has to be up front, or whatever. Like, we have all these, you know, a million different personas that we put on, these false selves. They're all just ways of coping with that shame that I can't be, you, surely you can't love me for who I really am, so I have to give you this in order for you to love me. For me, can I be personal for just a brief moment? For me, from my earliest memories, I believed 
that I, the lie that I'm not valuable unless I'm doing something important for God. That was the message sent from very early on. Anything less than serving God was a waste of time and a waste of my life, and therefore I shouldn't do it. Anything, including playing sports. It's part of the reason why I never played sports growing up. Because why would you do that? That's not serving God. See? Um, uh, Just hanging out with family and friends. Like, you don't do that. You always have to be doing something. I mean, shouldn't you be at the soup kitchen? Shouldn't you be at the old folks' home? Shouldn't you be doing something at church? Like, you can't just possibly hang out in your living room and play some games and enjoy company. That's what's spiritual in that. And secular job, forget it. Oof. The only reason why you would be anything other than a missionary or pastor is to have a job and make money to give money to missionaries and pastors. Like, that's the only reason why you would do that. And so is it any wonder that I grew up and became a pastor? See? And I hid behind Bible guy because that's great. I can talk Bible all day long. Let's do that. And I even created a false self a fault to, to justify the negative parts of my persona. I call him the hillbilly. You've heard me refer to the hillbilly sometimes. It comes from my West Virginia roots. But in a sense, the hillbilly sort of is a covering, right? Anytime I'm awkward, anytime I say or do something dumb, I can blame the hillbilly because surely that that wouldn't possibly be coming from the real me, you know? Like, the real me can't be that awkward. Can he? <laughs> I, apparently he is. <laughs> That's the truth, see? And the problem is we get addicted to our false selves. And I got addicted to doing important things for God. But all that came crashing down about eight years or so ago. I don't want to bore you with the details, but I'm happy to share them. Buy me a cup of coffee. I'll tell you the testimony. God's pretty good. He's pretty awesome. But suffice it to say that there was one particular night in that season where I hit the absolute bottom. It was a defining moment for me. My false self was stripped away. I was no longer a pastor in that moment. You guys had forced me on sabbatical. Thank you, by the way. Thank you. But in that moment, I'm not a pastor anymore. In that moment, being a Bible expert didn't matter. In that moment, my own value as a Christian husband was called into serious question. In that moment, my own value as a Christian dad, my own three kids weren't sure who I was. It was a mess. I literally, for that brief period of time, and praise God that it was brief. I'm so thankful it was brief. But for a brief period of time, it was all taken away. It was all gone. And I had this moment I was all alone. I'm on the couch in the dark in our Florida room. And the only prayer I could pray was just to say the name of Jesus over and over and over and over again. Just Jesus, 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 Jesus. I didn't even know how to pray for what I was going through. Just Jesus. And this is how the song opens. Kiss me. Just kiss me, Jesus. I need a kiss. I need you to come. I need you, Jesus. You. Not what you can do for me, but you, Jesus. 
And I love the second request that she makes in verse 4. Because she says, take me away with you. Do you see that in verse 4? See, it's like we reach this point. I want Jesus, and now what do I want? I want Jesus just to get me out of here. (laughs) Jesus, take me away. The castle in the sand that I built for myself, it collapsed. My house of cards, it all came crashing down. Okay, that's left me empty and dry. So, Jesus, let's just blow this clam bake. (laughs) You and me, let's get out. It's the request of James and John in James and Andrew, rather, in John chapter 1, verse 38. You know, Jesus is walking, and he notices these two guys following him. And Jesus turns around, and he says, what is it that you want? And James and Andrew say, where are you staying, Lord? And Jesus says, come and see. And so they came and went, and the rest is history, as it were. In a sense, that's you and me. I want the presence of Jesus. And Jesus turns to you, and Jesus turns to me, and he goes, hey, what do you want? And you go, Where are you going, Jesus? That's where I want to go. And Jesus says, let's go. And so we follow him, see? And I I think this is amazing. All I want is his company. All I want is him. Not what he can do for me, but him. That's an amazing place to be, my friend, when you come to this spot in your walk with him. You know, the other day, pardon me for being a bit... I don't know, goofy, but here we go. This is not the hillbilly. This is probably the real me and how I really think, okay? But the other day as I'm thinking through this and praying through this, I was just telling Jesus. I'm like, Jesus, I said, Lord, you either like are a really bad judge of character or it just doesn't matter because you have a habit of picking really lousy friends, you know? Like if I was Jesus' dad, I would never let him hang out with us. Would you? Are we not bad influences? Like, why, Jesus? And yet I see in the Bible, I see him, you know, sitting at dinner with Judas the traitor, calling him friend. And do you not scream at, want to scream at Jesus and go, Jesus, he's a traitor. And Jesus goes, he's my friend. No, Jesus, he's not good for you. He's my friend. (laughs) It's what he does. I see in the Old Testament, I see Jesus coming to a liar like Abraham, calling him my friend. I see Jesus coming to moody leaders like Moses, calling, talking to them face to face, the Bible says, like friends. And I see Jesus coming to the likes of you and me saying, friends, (laughs) right? Friends. Thankfully, our friendship is heavily weighted in his direction so that I become like him and not the other way around. Amen? Amen. But I have to wonder, does Jesus love me for who I am, or does Jesus love me for who I pretend to be? And this is what we're wrestling with in chapter 1, because we see him in chapter 1, verse 2 and 3 and 4. You see Jesus, and his name is like perfume, and his repu- which means his reputation. His name is his reputation. So his reputation is awesome. And we hear about that, and we say, that's amazing. I want to get to know him. Is it possible that he would want to get to know me? I don't know. I look at myself in chapter 1, verse 5, and I realize I'm dark but lovely. I, I, I'm lovely, you know, but i got these dark spots. I've got some faults, don't I, that I'm bringing into this equation. But the good news is, I think, the good news is, I have an excuse See, I am the way that I am, well, because she said, my brothers made me work in the vineyard, so I couldn't take care of my own vineyard. Don't you love how we do that? Jesus, you know, like, we, here's my fault, but as long as I have a good excuse for my fault, I feel like I'm okay with that. Like, that's good. I got a good reason for it. 
And then you know what? I think also I bring that into my relationship with Jesus. Some of us think that the reason why Jesus loves you is because you've made a really great excuse for your faults and you've made up for them, see? And then you discover that Jesus doesn't care about any of that. He's loved you all along. All along. You don't even need a good excuse. He's just always loved you. See? So then, I want to get to know him. It's kind of risky. So I'm going to go after Jesus instead because I don't know if I really want to let him into me. So I'm going to go after him. And that's verse 7. Verse 7, she says, Where do you graze your flock? Why should I be like a veiled woman by the flocks of your friends? In other words, I don't want to be sneaking around like some veiled woman hiding in the shadows stalking you. I want to know where you are, Jesus, so that I can be with you. I'm searching for you, Jesus. And isn't that kind of funny how we do that? We think that we're the ones who find him. And then at some point you realize, actually, uh, no, I never found him. He found me. See? It's kind of funny. But then Jesus speaks, and he changes everything, and that's verse 9 with this funny thing. Jesus says, I liken you, my darling, to a mare. And so first of all, he calls you his darling. Do you know the word darling is his favorite nickname for you? Favorite nickname. He says it nine times in the Song of Songs. And the word darling in the Hebrew, it literally means lover, friend. Jesus calls you his lover. He calls you his friend. You're my lover, friend. Literally this morning, Jesus nudged you awake, and he said, good morning, my darling. My darling. He calls you his darling. And then he says, I liken you to one of Pharaoh's mares, he says there. And we said, it doesn't mean that you look like a horse. That's not what he's suggesting. As we've learned in the Song of Songs, that that these word pictures, they convey feelings. And so Jesus is talking about how you make him feel. And you think about these mares, these pharaoh's horses, they would be the most prized creatures in all of Egypt, would they not? They would be cherished. They would be protected. They would be elevated. I mean, you would be in awe of these creatures. And so Jesus is saying of you, you, I'm in awe of you. You are amazing. You are royal. That's what he's saying about you. And you think, how's that possible? It's, it's the same, it's the scene from the New Testament when Jesus is speaking to Simon. And he says to Simon, I no longer call you Simon, I call you Peter. Remember that story? So Simon means shifting sand. The name Peter means rock. So Jesus calls Peter a rock before he ever does anything like a rock, before he even looks like a rock. And Jesus calls you royal before you even look royal. That's what he does. He speaks his word into your life, and he actually creates, he recreates you with his very word. See, the same one that that spoke the universe into existence, called it out of nothing, speaks into your heart, awkward teenage girl from Princess Diaries, and he goes, you are royal. And you look at yourself and you say, are you sure? I don't think so. Yes, that's your true self. Who's my true self? Who is the person buried at the bottom of, you know, my false self and my shame? That person, 
that person's royal. That person's got the thumbprint of God on their life. That person is made in his image. And Jesus doesn't stop there. Verse 15, he says, How beautiful you are, my darling. Your eyes are like doves. <laughs> How beautiful you are. And your eyes are dove. They, they make me feel peaceful. Your, your eyes bring peace, see? I mean, I look in the mirror, and I see someone who's, you know, lovely, but probably dark. And Jesus says, no, you're just plain beautiful. His feelings for you defy your wildest expectations and imaginations. And Jesus looks at you, and he says, I see peace in your eyes like doves. You know, in the ancient world, um, one of the hallmarks of perfection in a woman were her eyes. Beautiful eyes were considered perfect woman. And so Jesus looks at you and he says, perfection. And you say, no. He says, yes. Well, of course that's true. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21. Right? He, he took our sin and gave us his righteousness. That's what this says. So there is perfection. And I look at my heart and I go, peace like doves? Are you sure you're looking into the right soul? You know, because I don't see peace in there, Lord. I mean, I see awkward, I see funky feelings, but Jesus sees peace in my eyes? Yes. And he ends chapter one with a promise. He says, the beams of our house are cedars, our rafters are firs. In other words, I've got something solid for us to rest our relationship on. My relationship with Jesus is not based on my own feelings, my own thoughts, my own beliefs. It's based firmly on his word. See, he says our house is built out of cedars and firs. It's got, it's solid. And as chapter two opens, you and I are back at it. We're still stuck in our insecurity. We're a little better off. We've moved past being dark but lovely. And we say, I know that I'm a flower, but I'm just one flower among many flowers. I'm a rose of Sharon. I'm a lily of the valleys. And then Jesus looks at you, and he says, oh, no, you are a lily among thorns. Isn't that crazy? You think, I'm just a flower among flowers. And Jesus says, no, you're a lily among thorns. So if Maria's a lily among thorns, that means she's the lily and we're the thorns. Right? Oh, but no, wait a second. Robin is now the lily, and the rest of us are thorns. Yeah, that's true too. And Curtis is the lily, and the rest of us are, yep, that's true also. See, Jesus loves you like you're the only one there is to love. So you can honestly, legitimately say, I'm his favorite. And you say, is that possibly biblical? Yes, we have the whole gospel of John. That the apostle John wrote this gospel in your New Testaments. And you know what John called himself? Hey, you might have heard of me. I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. Did he not? Right? Were there not other disciples? And Jesus loved them too. Obviously, he must have. And yet John says, yeah, but I'm the one he loves. Okay, do you know how life-changing that could be for you if you were to begin to walk in that and own that? I know that, Jesus, you love everybody. I get that, but I'm your favorite. Like, to begin to own that in your soul, the difference that that could make in your life and in your heart. See, you're not the center of the universe, but Jesus loves you like 
you are. And then chapter 2 comes to a close, and I just sweep right through it here. But we're sitting under the shade of Jesus as our apple tree. Do you see the imagery there? We're taking rest under the shade of the apple tree, and we're being fed by the apple tree. There's a restoration. There's a peace. There's a feeding there. There's a safety there under the apple tree. And then it ends, starting in verses 10 through 13, Jesus is speaking, and I love it because it ends the way that it began in the sense that at the beginning of chapter 1, you and I are asking to be taken away with Jesus. Take me away, Jesus, remember there? And now chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, Jesus is inviting us to come away with him. He says, why don't you and I get out of here? Let's go. He's inviting us to follow him. And you notice the imagery is all springtime imagery. You see that at the, end of, at the end of what we read? The flowers are in bloom, the blossoms and all that. It's springtime. He even says that the, the winter is past, it's over. So now you and I have a fresh start. It's springtime, there's hope. We're looking forward. Why? Because I'm walking with Jesus. That's how we begin. So perhaps you this morning are at the end of your rope. You've reached the end of yourself. You've tried everything else, and it's left you empty. You've tried religion. That ended up being dead. You you tried relationships. You got hurt. You, You tried pleasure. That left you empty and broke but the ache in your soul still persists. You say, yeah, I'm a church person. I come to church, and I still have that ache in my soul. That's right. Because nothing can satisfy you like Jesus. New River Church can't satisfy you like Jesus. Coming to church is not what your soul needs. I mean, it's a good thing. I'm not, don't get me wrong. But ultimately, you need Christ The longing in your heart is a cry for intimacy, for him to kiss you, for him to breathe his life into you. That's the cry of your heart. St. Augustine said that the heart is restless until it rests in God. And maybe this morning your heart is exactly that, restless, kind of a jumbled mess. And so now we're at this amazing moment at the beginning of Song of Songs where we can turn to Jesus and discover that he's loved you all along. You can drop the excuses. They're really not needed at this point. Jesus loves you with all your stuff, as is. I love that. Maybe this morning you're with me and you say, yeah, I'm not quite sure I'm ready to go all in with that. Then I just invite you to keep coming back because by the time we're finished with the Song of Songs, I'm convinced that you will be drawn into the thing that you're looking for. Well, that about wraps it up for today. We hope that today's message was a blessing to you. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org.